You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. On today's show, Amanda Hesser, who I think most people know these days as the co-founder of Food52, the hugely popular cooking website. But I know I at least got to know her back in the mid-90s when she started writing for the New York Times. And then she did the unthinkable. She left the Times. Uh, and she wanted to launch this crowdsourced food startup. And I was like, what are you thinking? Boy, was I wrong. Obviously, Food 2 has taken off and been tremendously successful. So coming up, we have Amanda Hester and I talking about how going against the grain is often the best career move. But stay tuned. After that, Andrew Knowlton, our deputy editor, checks in with Julia Kramer, his fellow restaurant critic who's on the road right now doing research for our best new restaurants issue in September. This is sort of day 12 of a marathon trip that Kramer is on. And if she sounds like a shell of a human being at this point in her trip, uh, it's because we later found out that she had gotten pneumonia. Uh, So please go easy on poor Kramer. She had literally eaten and drunk herself sick. Uh, But first, here's Amanda Hesser and I. Okay, so Amanda, I noticed that you're here in New York and you're not on spring break with your with your two kids. <laughs> Indeed, I'm here. So we met years ago when I was at Time Out in the in the mid late nineties, I guess when you started at the New York Times in ninety seven. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I remember before I met you, I, I would read you in the New York Times and I remember like thinking like, who is this person who's now like writing in a way that makes cooking and food writing fun? And like I remember, you I just I had never met you before, but I I immediately was impressed with your style of writing and kind of taken aback as a fellow writer. Like, wow, how is this Amanda person getting away with this? And <laughs> what do you recall about when you came into the Times and how you wrote and how the Times wrote? Well, I don't think I would say I was like a student of the Times. Um, yeah. I was a big fan. I, like my favorite writers were the I think the more kind of colorful writers who really had great voice and personality, like Amy Spindler. Do you remember Mm -hmm. her writing? I loved her. Yeah, those were kind of like my, I would say more of my my heroes at the Times. Um, But I wasn't actually like a super regular reader of the Times then. So I don't think I like went in feeling like I had to conform because I didn't really realize that that's what most most people did. Um, And so I kind of... um, Blissfully ignorant. I was blissfully (laughs) ignorant, which is sort of how I do most things. Um, And um, I just kind of like went for it. And I think I was still trying to find my own voice. Mm. I was, you know, I was a pretty young writer at that time. I was 24. I'd written a book and not much else. I just went for it. Um, and I do remember the first edit, this guy, really lovely editor called, um, um, whose name is Nick Fox at the at the Times. He he edited my, my first piece. Which was, and what was the first piece on? It was on Miso. It was like, it was, uh-huh. honestly, it was really terrible. Don't look it up. <laughs> um, and it was kind of a mess, but I... <laughs> He, uh, we were going back and forth on the edit, and this is like, you know, it, I don't know if this happens anymore, but the times you really got edited. Yeah. And, um, and I guess I didn't realize that I was giving him a really hard time, and he turned to me and he said, you've got balls. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. Thank you. I think. I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just, uh, I don't know, I just kind of did what felt right to me at the time. Yeah. Because there was a very... The Times food section at the time at the time was a pretty senior staff with like the Marion Burroughs and Florence Fabricant and Eric yeah. Asimov. There was you know there was a, a a rotation of writers who were there and, and I remember like one piece that you wrote I don't know why this sticks with me you wrote a piece on 
whisks and all the different types of whisks there were. You took them home and you cooked with them. And it was it struck me as like, wow, this person's A, they're using the first person. B, they're actually going home and cooking themselves and writing about it as an experience. And I just thought it was I found it very relatable in a way that the times didn't really do at that point. There wasn't a lot of that sort of first-person experiential stuff. Yeah. I was there for a couple of years before, and then I started writing this column for the magazine called Food Diary. And that was very much – it was kind of bloggy before blogs. Um, Did you get get pushback in terms of writing in your voice? I mean, I got a lot of pushback Mm -hmm. for that column. People either, like, really loved it – or really hated it. And what um, for those people who didn't like it? What what were, what were their issues? I think it was their discomfort with you know the Times having someone write not only in first person but kind of quite personally, mm-hmm. um, especially about food. Yeah. Which then you know I think is I mean it's so much more accepted now. But then it was sort of like food is something you kind of ate and appreciated. They nobody wanted to really acknowledge that it had incredibly like deep connections with you know the, like the emotional fabric of your life. Um, and I think that's what I was trying to get at as yeah. a writer. Um, and I felt like I couldn't do in the dining section of the Times, but the magazine seemed like a more uh, appropriate platform for it. And I think they were like. Actually, Amy Spindler is the one who hired me to do that. And then um, it wasn't the kind of column that I I would wanted to nor planned to write for a long time mm-hmm. because it had a natural arc. It's funny to talk about th- those days because, I mean, and I did feel like an outsider. Um, and I think I've all- long felt that way because, yeah. like, I wasn't – I mean, I really – I came to New York to get – to take this job in, in, uh, at the Times, and I didn't know anyone in New York. I had one friend in New York. And the Times, because I was – Fairly, I mean, I wasn't the only young person there, but yeah. it's a very, it was a very small group. And a pretty and, tight-knit group. I'm just impressed that you've managed to sort of swim upstream at times or not go the obvious route. And, and with the times, people seem to do things the times way. Um, and you were like, it seemed like you were like, no, I'm going to do it my way. And then I'm going to do this. And now I'm, then I'm going to write the Mr. Latte column. And wh- where do you think that comes from? You know that, that um, <laughs> I'm the youngest child <laughs> <laughs> of four. That's where it comes from. So you're just used to doing your own thing. Well, yeah, kind of. And I was like, you know, I've so I have three older siblings, but they're kind of like right in a row. And then there was like a five year break, and then me. So I do actually think that you know that has probably a pretty yeah. big impact on um, your sense of what you can do and what's permissible. Um, my parents, at that point, had become much more relaxed, and I, you know, I just sort of, I think, I just had a little bit of fire in me, and kind of, I, w- I definitely was like that way growing up. And unfortunately, I actually think having a job at the Times was amazing. I, I do think like I wasn't a great fit. I yeah. mean, as as you pointed out, because but that's um, what, but that's what made you noticeable that you weren't a, an obvious <laughs> fit. I mean, seriously, yeah. like, I noticed yeah. like, wow, this she seems a little different than everyone else. But that's why I noticed you, at least personally. I think a lot of other people did too. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, because uh, I probably also because of my upbringing, I, you know, you get a job at a place like the New York Times and you sort of feel like, oh, well, I have this like I work at this very respectable respectable um, institution. Yeah, and like the I, most respectable. Y- yes. And, you know, I was I was paid well and I was getting to do work that I loved. So I think I stayed longer than I should have. But a lot of people, when they get to the Times, that's it. They're like, all right, I'm at the Times. I'm good. This is where I'm going to be for the next 40 years. Yeah. Did that no, ever occur to you? Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but at the same time, it wasn't clear to me that I, like, when or how I would leave. And I was for a number of years able to, you know, kind of go my own way, um, try a bunch of different things. Um, was there, was there, did, but, you, did you have one champion at the Times who supported you and was like, hey, she's she's got a good thing going, let her do her thing? 
Well, yes, in the beginning I did. Mm. And th- that was the person who helped get me hired, a, an editor named Rick Flast, who he was the one who designed the dining section. Yeah, I've and, met Rick before. Yeah. yeah, he's amazing. And I, actually, I remember writing uh, again on this first story. God, what a mess. <laughs> um, but he uh, he said, um, you don't have a nut graph when he, when he, after he read the first draft. And I said, well, what's a what's nut? <laughs> and, he, and he literally smacked <laughs> his hands over his eyes like, like, oh, my God, what have I done? Okay. I've, like, hired this person okay. who's so clueless. But, again, like, I didn't, ha- I didn't know what news- newspaper story yeah. structure was. I just, like, wrote. So you write for the Times yeah. magazine, which is a different sort of – a different division within the Times and different – and staff and everything and more magazine-y. Um, and then how did the whole Mr. Latte thing come about? Well – And that's – and I – full disclosure, that's yeah. where I got off the Hesser bus. I'm like – I'm not Mr. Latte guy. I <laughs> See, don't know. you're with you were a hater. It's okay. I wasn't a hater. It's just like, yeah, I don't care about this guy. She's dating. I don't know. But then, like, I obviously it was but also now, hugely now you, popular. Was, well, yes, it was like hugely popular, and then everyone else who didn't like it like hated it. But that's um, good though. It's like well, if you're not pissing someone off, you're doing something wrong. I, I tell our editors that all the time. Um, <laughs> I always tell my editors, pick a lane. You can't be everything for everyone. Pick a lane. You're going to piss some people off. It's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I I think I was just getting um, I think I was a little lost mm-hmm. and I wasn't and I wasn't super happy and, and I think, and I think how was, what you were what at this point age wise oh 30? 30, okay or not even twenty nine yeah. I guess yeah um twenty eight actually um so twenty eight I was starting to get restless um and I felt felt like but it wasn't clear to me what was the problem and yeah. the problem was that I didn't belong at a corporation <laughs> um you know and uh, um so. I um I got this email from Amy saying like we we want to like we want to do something different in the food pages and like very different and um and so they, she and Andy Port took me out to uh, lunch or breakfast and we we just sort of chatted about stuff and I think I found myself talking about like how about something that's more narrative um, and I feel like nobody's getting at this like how food interacts with your actual life yeah. and there's interesting material there in fact I've just, you know, just started dating this guy who I really like um, but he like he has like books in his oven and um, <laughs> and you know an old piece of unwrapped cheese and one bottle of champagne in his fridge that's it um, and uh, and so they were amused by that and they they said well why don't you think about it and like Try writing something. Yeah. So I wrote like the first two columns, and I, they they it was the, it was actually the kind of thing that just kind of poured out of me because I felt like I think I just have that that kind of writing is more natural to yeah, me, yeah. Um, the sort of personal narrative. Um, uh, anyway, so I did it. They loved it, and then um, and then my editors down in the newspaper got really mad at me that I had pitched something to the magazine. <laughs> so I was like, I was really in trouble, actually. Pissing someone off and did. Did Tad get to read them before oh, yeah. publishing? So, yeah. oh, so he got to he sign read off everything. on them. Yeah. yeah, and he, but he's because he's a writer. Yeah. He un, he understood that. <laughs> in order to kind of draw people in, I was in the beginning really emphasizing the sort of like negative aspects of his uh, lack of cooking. Yeah, so food, he understood the the, yeah. the, well, the he un- storytelling craft. He, yeah, he understood. Yeah, he understood that he was ultimately the hero and that yeah. I was actually the one who needed reform <laughs> because I was this like food snob. So, so yeah, he understood that he was not offended in any way yeah. by any any of the things that I said about him. So eventually then you did the New York Times cookbook, which yeah. that seemed – but at that point – so then at that point you'd sort of excised yourself from the day-to-day operations of the Times to kind of just do the cookbook on your own or how did that work? No. What happened was – so then I you know I did this food diary column. I was still at the newspaper yeah. and then I actually got 
a job as the food editor at the magazine, but that was after that column was yeah. over. And then I like I become became an editor, and yeah. I would write one of one column a month, yeah. and then I would I was the editor for the others, and I did some other work at the magazine as well. And it was around that time that I, that I had this idea to do basically a kind of retrospective Times recipe. So I started it while I was at the Times, and that's actually how I met my co-founder and now close friend Meryl Stubbs. Um, from Food 52. Yeah, yeah from, from Food 52. And um, a Times colleague introduced us to each other. She was just moving back from Boston. We were, I was looking for somebody to help me test recipes and do research. So we just started and hit it off, and then f- that project took five years. So yeah. I did I mean, work. It's a, it's a beast of a book. Yeah. It's, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's, it's like a Joy <laughs> of Cooking-sized tome. Yeah. Um, so you were yeah, – so how many recipes? It has about um, 1,100. Wow. But I did leave the Times in the middle of working on that. I took the buyout, and I kept writing my column – for the magazine. Once a month. Yeah, once a month. And while I was working on this book, and then I actually left the time so that I could do a different startup that had nothing to do with food. Mm-hmm. Um, I pursued that for about a year while still working with Meryl on the book and writing my column. And then, wait, wait, um, wait, wait. What was that startup? Well, it was called Seawinkle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nothing to do with food. But um, it was very interesting to me and did some really cool stuff, but then realized like there wasn't, there wasn't a business that we were excited to mm-hmm. build around it. But in a way, like I always call that like my startup grad school because yeah. I did actually like spend a lot of my savings um, that year working on that project. But I got totally immersed in the startup world and I met lots of like other founders and uh, investors and kind of got a lay of the land. And I really felt like this was a place that I belonged. Yeah. Um, and Meryl and I, meanwhile, had been like talking about, you know, what was going on in the food space, particularly online. And at that time, there really wasn't much. And this was 2008, 2009. Yeah. yeah. Food online was dominated by big recipe sites yeah. and food blogs, most of which had very small followings, but great content. And then traditional media sites who hadn't yet fully embraced. Like, I mean, I think if you look back at Bon Appetit then compared to now oh online, God. it's I, like, right? At the time, it felt very oh, um, desolate. Yeah. And it felt like, oh my gosh, there, as people who were immersed in in food, uh, in our professions, there was so much going on. It was so vibrant offline. Yeah, you know, people were quitting their jobs and starting all these, you know, small, becoming small makers. Um, you know, the the chef um, landscape was completely getting altered uh, and moving away from kind of high-end restaurants to all of these, I think, much more interesting um, kind of indie restaurants. I mean, there was just, there was so much going on. And we just felt like there, here's this place of, of that's, you know, supposed to be a center of innovation and there's nothing happening and there's no place that we really want to spend our time. Um, Let's create that place. And so that's the kernel that we started with. Um, And then I think because I had already (laughs) done a startup, so to speak, um, I knew that it wasn't an idea that we felt like we could just sell. Mm. Like we had to prove something first. We had to do a proof of concept. And for the idea itself, but also because of the style of founders that we are, which is like we're not the kind of people who can um, you know, sell an idea on a napkin for a billion dollars, we, we have to kind of show that we have something real. And um, so we ended up starting our company by uh, getting a book deal from HarperCollins and um, and using that money to build the site. And actually and getting... so the book deal sort of... Yeah. Uh, com- sort of captured the ethos of what the site would be? Yes. Yeah. So it was basically... it was it cap- It allowed us to kind of neatly package our proof of concept, mm-hmm. which was we wanted to test out like crowdsourcing and curation. Mm-hmm. Like can can we get can we give voice to all those cooks out there who don't have, really have a place to kind of share their ideas um, and create this kind of world for cooks while um, 
also curating it so that it's beautiful, inspiring, has a sense, a strong sensibility, strong voice, like the traditional media that we yeah. come from. Well, right? that's, I guess that's my question. There's a couple of things. Like, yeah. A, in those intervening years when you were finishing the Times cookbook, you were getting your feet wet in the startup world. You would – was it weird to not have um, a platform – an audience as much for your writing, someone who used to be writing every week in the Times Food section, multiple pieces, and your name was out there, and your voice was out there, and your opinions were out there. And for, for then, it, it seemed like you definitely probably scaled back in terms of how often you were getting your thoughts out into the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I, I never missed it. Really? Yeah. I just, it was like, just, I, I don't know. I guess I just thought, like, I enjoyed it. I, I wrote a lot. I mean, I guess you would think for somebody who does a lot of personal narrative that that's yeah. sort and of you, and like— you, and, that, you, and you wrote frequently also. Yeah. It was personal and frequently. Yeah. And then to just sort of, like, rein it in. <laughs> well, I think I was relieved. Yeah. You know, I think I was probably writing maybe too much mm-hmm. um, and was probably a little tired. Um, but also I was excited to do other things. You know, I just—we had, like, just had our kids. Twins, yeah. Yeah, twins. Yeah. Uh, and— I don't know. You know, it's a it's a big reflection point in your life. Yeah. I don't know. I just I felt like I felt like an incredible freedom to just like do something um, new and different. And I was not looking back and feeling sorrow. I was feeling kind of like glad that I had done that, but interested in moving forward. And I think um, actually one of the things that um, Meryl and I have both struggled with as running a company where we want to be present leaders, um, but we have no interest in the kind of like being the personalities of the mm-hmm. company. Um, it's a little bit of a struggle because people look for that. But I'm much more happy, like, when somebody on our team, like Kristen McGlory, who's mm-hmm. our executive editor, you know, started writing Genius Recipes and it became this hit. I'm like, great. That's yours. That, that's yours. Yeah. And we want people to celebrate you and we want to push your book and all of that. Like, that's exciting to me. That, to me, feels like an accomplishment. I think that's um, – I don't think I had a lot of, like – I think what I'm trying to get is I didn't have a lot of ego attached to my writing – Mm-hmm. It was more like interesting to do when I did it. Yeah, it's also. I mean, it's also what I find interesting about you know with the launch of Food Fifty Two is the crowdsourcing nature. Whereas in traditional media and something I probably still do a lot of at BA, um, it's very much hey, we are telling you guys how to do what we do. Yeah. Um, but to sort of step back and be like, no, no, you got to tell 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 me, tell us what you're doing. That yeah. that also I imagine took a leap. It was, again, though, I feel like it was a a relief. Some of that sprung out of um, the work on the Times Cookbook because we put um, a call in the newspaper and the magazine asking uh, readers, like, what are their favorite recipes? Mm -hmm. And people wrote in with such, like, conviction and detail about recipes that were three decades old. And stories about how they cooked them every Christmas or every Passover or whatever, you know. Yeah. And and in fact, in the Times archives, the 19th century archives have actually a ton of food coverage. There was so much food coverage all the time. And it almost always crowdsourced. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, it was like, it was readers who would write in with recipes. And they were, like, regulars. There was this Aunt Addie who was, like, this very competitive cook who was, like, constantly publishing in the Times and very (laughs) opinionated and kind of slightly annoying um but but you couldn't resist reading her um and i think like these these things it felt like there was something there um to us and uh that hadn't been fully explored um yet um but i also think though like it there is value to having that guidance and voice uh editorial voice and leadership that traditional media does and I think that that's what we're always trying to like. We're trying to strike that balance yeah. at Food Fifty Two, and it's not always, you know, it's not always successful. It's not always easy. Um, you also started a business, mm-hmm. and what's that been like? Because it's one thing to have a cool idea; it's another thing to actually 
make it profitable and, yeah. and, and mine the numbers? And how much of a learning curve has that been for you? Well, so this is, I think, another thing that took me a long time to realize. But like, some, when I was growing up, my parents bought a business uh, when I was four. And I think that I didn't recognize until much later in my life that actually a lot of that <laughs> kind of survival instinct with a business and like just sense of the ups and downs and how a business works like was just part of my my upbringing. Um, but I never it never really occurred to me to, to like start a business. Yeah. Um, I think we just both had like a general sense of like how, how to go about things, like how to be scrappy. And then a few years back, you started the shop on yeah. Food Food 2. And yeah. can we talk about that in terms of, which is now, it seems like you got a lot going on there. I have yeah. no idea the business side of that, but let's talk about yeah. how that, how that well, came about. Well, I can talk about. about the business side too. Yeah. It's, it's two thirds of our revenue um, uh, comes from the shop. And really the goal is to, we want to support people in their kitchen and home life. Yeah. And we felt like previously it was kind of crazy that you would like need to go to one place for your recipes, another place to buy a platter, another yeah. place to buy buy a whisk. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, that this couldn't be all brought together in a shared space. And also another, um, we don't talk so much about this, but it is true that like, you know, with the, the sort of maker revolution happening. And so we felt like we could be this platform, just like we were a platform for home cooks to have a voice in the yeah. conversation, we are also a platform for, you know, makers to have yeah, broader, house, dis broader, yeah. broader distribution. For yeah. housewares and kitchen gear. And it's very yeah. curated. It's a broad but curated selection. And it, so then just a couple of days ago, you introduced a new app. Yes. Not, I'm doing the little air parentheses, <laughs> um, not recipes. Can we, can we talk yeah. about that? Yeah. So, not recipes grew out of a couple of um, different influences. One, well, one is that we have a we've had a column on our site, Food Fifty Two, called Not Recipes, that has been very popular for a number of years. So we knew that the concept of Not Recipes, meaning like teaching you the fundamentals of how a like how a dish comes together, kind of frees you of a recipe, yeah. and um, and but then also I think that you know over time when we first built our site. We built our recipe uploader op uploading template. Um, <laughs> purposely, we made it difficult for you to add a recipe to the site because mm -hmm. we wanted it to be a commitment. We wanted, if you were going to add a full recipe, we wanted it to be not something you could cut and paste, but something that you felt like people in the world needed to see, and you were therefore you were willing to take time to kind of like add each ingredient, um, you know, add each step. And that definitely did not um, deter people because we now have 40,000 <laughs> recipes. Um, but um, but we did feel like it, it as we've grown and our audience has grown, like um, it, it has left out a number of cooks who maybe don't necessarily want to make that commitment, but they want to share their ideas and yeah. they have valuable things to share. And we were seeing that happen on Instagram. I mean, all I would say not just on Instagram, but like all of our social channels, but particularly on Instagram where you can not only um, – you know, where you can show off yeah, your yeah. cooking yeah. visually, right? And so we were just started doing contests on Instagram that were essentially kind of replicating our, our recipe contests, but through Instagram. And they, those have been very popular. And we just felt like there was something there. And, you know, and then like thinking more about it, um, <laughs> it occurred to us, um, again, like we're sort of slow learners, but, uh, oh, you know, in fact, most of the cooking in the world doesn't involve recipes. Yeah, It's kind of something that I struggle with each month and kind of drives me crazy. When I when I got the job at Bon Appetit five years ago, Tom Wallace, who was the uh, uh, editorial director of Condé Nast at the time, you know, the only thing he said to me was like, "Listen, do whatever you want with the magazine, but you have to have thirty to forty recipes a month. Like, wow, that's what the reader wants. That's what they've been getting. That's what they expect." 
And I was like, okay, well, that's kind of crazy. Um, he's not right. And then I realized, like, well, once I had the job, like, oh, yes, that's what the reader does expect. And if they don't get those 30 to 40 recipes a month, they get very angry. Um, but on the same token, it's like I – when I'm at home, I never cook with a recipe. And it's just like mm-hmm. it's it's kind of by feel. And like, yeah, how much cilantro? I don't know. You chop up a bunch and throw it in there. And how many mm-hmm. toasted almonds when you're making that grain bowl? Like, well, you know, a handful. And – I think that's it's so often that's the way people do cook, but it's 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 a challenge sometimes to communicate something that's done by feel. Yeah. Because they're like, well, how many almonds? And you're like, you know, a bunch. Well, what is a bunch? <laughs> and you're like, you know, or how much Dijon mustard? Like, well, as much as you want. Um, and there are a lot of I think while there are a lot of home cooks who do cook that way, there are then a lot of home cooks. I always bring up my sister. If you don't tell her to like the quarter teaspoon of how much to put in, she just her her head explodes and she just yeah won't cook the recipe. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's. Do you think it is for the more confident cook this type of recipe sort of display? Well, I think it's definitely for people who are you have some comfort level in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, but our hope is that, you know, it, it's, it feels inclusive and, and that people, like, even if they don't know, totally know what they're doing, yeah. they can share Maybe. their ideas um, and they can kind of use, use it as a resource. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I think that often recipes can seem very intimidating, you know, if they're very detailed. And so, like, I it's nice to think they oftentimes to... seem more intimidating than they are. Totally. Like you see I see a lot of ingredients, you're like, oh, I'm just never going to be able to yeah. do this. And there's a lot of words. And it's just because sometimes the words are overly descriptive. I mean, it's interesting. When you, you know, you've seen, I imagine when you were doing the Times research for the book, you look at those cookbooks from the 1800s and the recipes were so short. It's like, oh my God, they make were amazing. Biscuits. They just assume, you know, and like, that's just, <laughs> then take the biscuits and put a velote on top. Like, <laughs> you know, they just assume you already know how to do this stuff yeah. and they're just giving you ideas yeah. more than recipes, which is an interesting way of looking at it. Like, we're not going to handhold you through the entire process. We're just going to give you some new spins on what you already know how to do. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what we're seeing already on the app is a lot of that. All right. And if someone w- does want to download this app, what do they search for? Yeah. Um, <laughs> parentheses, not unparentheses recipes. Or just do not recipes. <laughs> not recipes, you'll, not find, recipes, it. you'll find it. Um, um, <laughs> and go check out Food 52 and all the beautiful cooking gear and housewares and recipes you got there. Um, but before we let you go, we're going to do our lightning round with you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Are you ready? Oh, I'm for really this? bad at lightning rounds. No, just going to warn, warn you. Good. Yeah. All right. Fish spatula or rubber spatula? Rubber spatula. I'm a baker. Oh, but I was going to ask you baking or cooking, but you just answered that question. Wow. Uh, marble or wood? Wood. Stoop sale or yard sale? Oh, uh, yard sale. But you're even as a Brooklyn gal, you're going, you're going back to when I'm you going, were a kid? Yes, yeah. Back to Scranton? I, yeah, I'm going back to Scranton. <laughs> I, I like the yard sale. There's more variety. <sighs> Chocolate chip or peanut butter? Chocolate chip. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I can grew, we still be friends? Yeah. No, I grew up, my mom was a really, she makes really good peanut butter cookies with like the sprinkled sugar on top and the little oh. cross fork hatch and stuff. And now she also, now because it's, we live in the time of uh, salty sweet, we also do the, the malted salt on top, which Ooh, is nice. nice. Um, you can do that on top of chocolate though. That's true. That's a good, it's spring. So ramps, overrated, underrated, or just rated? I would say just rated. Caesar or wedge? Oh, Caesar. Really? I Wow, I love Caesar. Yeah. Do you, do you make a homemade Caesar or is it usually when you're out at a restaurant? Both. Both. Donut question, cake or yeast? Yeast. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I was just teaching my kids about this. We, um, I got them a bunch of donuts from Doe. Okay. Yeah, uh, those are good ones. Doe, which yeah. is in Chelsea. And um, 
they 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 do both cake and yeast, and I was showing them the difference. But yeast, you get just you get so much more kind of like I like the sort of chewy texture. Yeah. Although I'll, I gotta um, say, a cake like a, a freshly fried cider donut with the cinnamon sugar yes. and stuff, like those can be really darn good. Yeah, that's true. Um, martini or Manhattan? Uh, Manhattan. Uh, Twitter or Instagram? In, um. Oh, this this is a, this one brings such sadness to me because I'm going to say Instagram, but I was such an early Twitter fan. Um, I kind of go loved, back. I, I go back and forth. I, I know what. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like I val. I guess I value them for both for, for both things. But if I'm like, if I've got a few minutes, yeah. in, Instagram is like in, like kind of instant pleasure. Yeah. Um, all right, latte or macchiato? <laughs> latte. Latte. <laughs> All right. Uh, hey, since I married Mr. Latte, I guess I have to. <laughs> you say, have yes. to. Uh, last question: butter or olive oil? Oh, and I can't have both. Wow, the smile on your face just disappeared. You can't have. You can only have <laughs> I, one. I would. I. I would probably go with olive oil. Are you going to forgive me for the latte series? <laughs> Are you over it now? I'm not going to forgive I, you. I'm, I just, I'm, I just didn't partake. I just like abstained for like, a couple of years. Okay. Yeah, I'm just like, right. yeah, I'll, I'll catch, I'll catch her on the back end. Uh, anyways, ladies and gentlemen, Amanda Hesser from Food Fifty Two. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you so much. Julia Kramer. Hello. <laughs> How are you doing? You know that part in that screenplay book, Save the Cat, where it's like the dark night of the soul? Is that bad? It's like that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so Kramer, so you're you're on the uh, search for Bonapetit's uh, Hot 10, America's Best New Restaurants, 2016. And we, che- we checked in with you uh, a week ago. What, what day are you at and how many restaurants have you been to so far? This is day 12. I've been to around, I think, 44 restaurants, new restaurants so far. One of the cool things that you get to do is you, you are get, getting to witness a snapshot of like where food is in America in a, in a specific year. Is it still the fast casual stuff? And I don't mean like, you know, Chipotle stuff, but you haven't been going to a lot of fine dining places. That's not just what, that's not what's happening right now. That's true. I've been to two tasting menus and they were both pretty disappointing and um, no slight against tasting menus. There are definitely awesome ones out there, but I think that a lot of the really exciting food that's happening right now could be happening in like a little organic cafe or um, I don't know, just like a, a neighborhood a neighborhood spot where you can order a couple things and your friend can just get wine and that's totally chill. Right. Um, so when you left last week, you started in where and what cities have you gone to and where are you now? So I've done um, three nights in L.A., three nights in San Francisco, two nights in Portland, Oregon, two nights in Seattle, one night in Denver and Boulder, and now I'm in Minneapolis, 
And I have to say there is so much awesome stuff going on in Minneapolis. So I was talking with some colleagues uh, about your condition earlier today. And I'm not going to lie, you sound um, a little less chipper and a, a little uh, worse for the weather since we last talked to you. How, how are you feeling? Unfortunately, I got sick. And, you know, Andrew, I've been reviewing restaurants for eight years. And I've always wondered, what is my limit? You know, like, how far can I push this? And I'm just going to say, now I know. Like, this is how far. You cannot go any farther than this. Um, and you have, your body will just shut down. And you have how many more days on the road? Four or five? I have four more nights, but three of them are in Chicago, and I'm going to be staying at my parents. So I feel like I'm going to have a chance to heal a little bit. But your taste buds are still intact, do you think? right now yeah we got we got a list to file here in less than about a month yeah i know well, you know when you get back off the road your body will just kind of rejuvenate and 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 you'll be back to normal in no time and you'll you'll be hungry again and wanting asking me to go get a cheeseburger with you after work i, I hope know so. but i mean to your point um I mean, I really, that is part of why I'm so upset to be sick, because obviously I want to do a good job, so. You're doing a great job. Come on. <laughs> but All I right. do, I do need, guys. I do need you to go back to Seattle and those other places to check out those restaurants you missed. Yeah, please don't do that to me anymore. It makes me really upset. <laughs> Love you, Julia. Okay, bye. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Belle Cushing and Carrie Polis, with editing by Mitra Kaboli and additional help from Christina Che and Lily Sherman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us anything about this or any episode, please email us at bonapetitfoodcast at gmail.com.